Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. Today we're in chapter 9, and you, you've noticed disciple service. This is part 2. And if you could turn, uh, the whole thing or the, the whole section begins uh, when Jesus foretells or tells uh, his, his death in verse 30. And you might want to open up and begin there. We started there last week. Kevin spoke. And what I want you to see is there are four couplets, four small little stories. One, two, three, four. Um, if you look in a commentary and you want a big word for today, they're called vignettes. All right? Four little short vignettes or stories. So as they're, they're, they're told, you might look at them in your devotions and go, well, wait a second. These don't even connect at all. They really do. So much so that if you don't know the first, you'll miss the next three. And so we began that idea last week and we had lesson one of last week and I want you to notice he says the teaching of Jesus is insufficient on its own now when Kevin said that and knowing that I'm the senior pastor here you need to understand I had to see a chiropractor on Tuesday for the bad neck snapping that I did when he said the teachings of Jesus is insufficient so after the chiropractor got it in place I want you to understand He's right in this sense. God penned the finality of his word as he closes out the book of Revelation. It's, it's somewhat evolutionary or developing from Genesis. He doesn't tell us everything about grace and the works and the writings of the Apostle Paul in Genesis or, or Exodus. But he, he develops them all across the context of Scripture. And so... Jesus is taking on one slice of the theological truth that we know about crucifixion. Jesus says, I'm going to be put in the hands of men. They'll kill me, but I'll rise again. Now, in that story, you and I know, well, he didn't say anything about standing before the wrath of God. He didn't say anything about accepting him by by faith alone through, through the grace that he gives us, he didn't tell any of those truths, and that's true. But he did tell a very profound story is that the Messiah's responsibility is not to come in on a white horse, but to suffer and to die and to rise again. And he is teaching Jewish men and women an understanding of the Old Testament that is vital for them to know. So Isaiah 53 could talk about the Messiah and say this in verse 8. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He died. Stricken for the transgression of my people. There's the hint of salvation. He was blamed for their sins. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Family, uh, Psalms 16.10 reminds us that he's not going to stay in the grave. And I love the trans 
translation done by the, the Jewish Publication Society. Again, a Jewish presentation of the Old Testament known as the Tanakh. It says this, Thou wilt not abandon my soul in the netherworld, neither will thou suffer thy godly one to see the pit. I won't see the grave. And though he tastes it in three days, he pops out in resurrection glory. So we have that wonderful privilege of what's going to happen when we see Jesus. And we looked at lesson two. To follow Jesus' teaching is to follow his example. And so as we, we recognize what the Messiah is supposed to do, lesson one, he's going to die at the hands of evil men and rise again. The the disciples who are often on again, off again, listening to Jesus, are off again. All right? So after hearing what he has just told them, they have something else in their mind. And I want to set the, the stage on what I think might be happening. And, and forgive me, but I'm, I'm dreaming a scenario to you this morning that is not found in the Bible. If you like it, take it home and enjoy it. All right? If not, just say, ah, Pete, screwed that one up. But listen to verse 30. It says this as they began. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. Very simple statement, but I want you to be reminded. Back in chapter 6, Jesus empowers them to go out and preach the message of repentance and then in preaching the repentance of, or the message of repentance, he says, I'm going to give you two abilities. You'll be able to cast out demons, and you'll be able to heal. And it's all done in this Galilee area. And Jesus is now walking them from north to south as they come back into the territory. And again, I'm just thinking how we might think. Wouldn't you, as you're walking through the town, and you had been in the town and you preached, wouldn't that, have been, wouldn't that have been natural to look down and say, oh, guys, guys, see that town? Right, you can see it right over the hill. Yeah? I, I healed a paralytic boy. This is the first time I ever healed. That was the coolest thing I've ever done. That, that, can you believe that? And as they walked along, maybe Doubting Thomas comes out and he says, guys, see that town there down in that valley? Yeah, I preached repentance there. It was my first message. I've never done anything like that before. And people raised their hands and, and, and they got things right with God. and They, they turned their lives around. Oh, it was incredible. And as they walked along and another one went, oh, oh, hey, I, a demon disrupted what I was doing. And I cast him out in Jesus' name. It was, I, I've never done anything like that. And family, isn't it natural for us to look down and go, you know, it's the coolest thing to be used by God, isn't it? When God does something through us, isn't it natural? But here's something that we also find natural. We go from, from that statement, God used me, to, wow, I'm one of the select few. I'm, I'm pretty good. God, God let me do a miracle. He doesn't let the average person do a miracle. I'm pretty good. 
And then we go on a little farther. And then we begin to sing our greatest hymn that's found anywhere in Christianity. How great I art. <laughs> Isn't it natural for us to do that? And the disciples are doing the same thing. So against the backdrop of saying, hey, I'm here to be humiliated. I'm here, I'm, I'm here to be mistreated, to be mishandled, and to be brutally killed. And you're arguing about who's the greatest? How dare you? And he takes up a little child. And he says this in verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And family, I want you to understand something today. A child is representative of anyone in the faith who might be more immature than you. And you have to understand, you have a profound responsibility. And when you look down and say, well, I'm not really important to this church. Hogwash. Do you understand you represent Christ as a leader to anyone beneath you in maturity? And everyone in this auditorium is being watched by somebody. And if you don't believe that, go home and talk to your kids if they're in the home. If you don't believe that, you go home and talk to your grandchildren, no matter what age. If you don't believe that, then you as an Awana leader, you as a Sunday school teacher, you even out at the coffee bar, if you don't believe that, then you've got a real misunderstanding of the responsibility of what it means to be in the family of God. And he looks down to all of them and he told them this reminder. And so in that representation, he strikes us to be humble and encourages us to recognize that we serve him. And family, if you at all ever struggle with the idea of I want to be important to the church. I need to be recognized for my abilities in the church. Please understand that that's a terrible attitude. And I want to suggest to you, just serve. Just serve. Pour your heart out. Let God raise you to where God wants you to be. Understand no pastor, and if they get in front of you and tell you that I don't have this problem, they're lying to you. No pastor that I've ever met doesn't in their hearts struggle a little bit. Why, not I, why, why, why am I not the, the blessed one with the larger church? Uh, why am I not the blessed one with the more money church? Uh, why come I didn't do it? So understand, it is a universal problem sometimes within this, the, the, the pastorate. And it can be a problem in all church. Just be careful. Let God 
raise you in leadership and God bless you, you serve him with gusto and let him do what God does. Family, serving with gusto is a God thing. And serve and thank him. So let's go into today's lessons. And there, there's two of them. And I want you to see lesson three. To follow Jesus' teaching is to know his family. I love the book of Mark. Um, I am discovering the, the truths of its importance through this journey with us. I told you I was waiting till the end of my career to preach the book of Mark. And, and all of you are looking down going, okay, when's that going to end? It won't be when the chapter 16's over with, all right? I, I love talking about my anniversary, by the way, because everybody, the next, the next sentence, well, when are you going to quit? Well, I'm hoping that you're not doing that with some level of excitement, okay? Because that's been really fun for me. But when we finish chapter 16, it doesn't mean I'm walking out the door, all right? But I will tell you this, understand, those of you who find that important, I believe it to be important that a pastor not sit around and wait until he's got nothing more to give and the church is in virtual dead standstill. It's important that you stay moving, you stay growing, you stay concerned with the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so walking out is important for a pastor because he's got to walk out while the church is moving forward. So understand, it won't be this year, don't worry, but it will be. It will be. And our elders have got a great handle on it. You've got to know your family. You've got to know your family. When Mark teaches, he just has a way of highlighting human sins and weaknesses. Um, and you see that here. And so I'm, I'm telling you this because I don't want you to miss it as you're looking at your Bibles right now. John looks down, and after Jesus just telling them, I'm going to the cross, after Jesus just telling them, be humble, you're not that great, John doesn't even hear it. And he comes down and he raises a question. I just saw a guy casting out a demon. And I want you to see what he says. Jesus, John tells Jesus that the miracle worker isn't one of us. Please think that through. John just looked down and says, yeah, Jesus, you and me are a team. All right? He just brought Jesus down to the level of the rest of the disciples. He's not one of us. He never said he doesn't follow you. And so if, if John's going to be humble, he wants to know and make certain everybody else is going to be humble too. So let's read now, and I want you to take note. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil against me, or speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water 
to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, family, I'm adding 42 here where many of your Bibles put it down in that next paragraph. That's a human judgment. It's not in, in the text at all. So understand, I'm going to tie it with here because I think it fits better. Notice what it says. Whoever causes one of these little ones, we just talked about it, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. So family, I want you to understand, in this moment of, of, of history, in this moment of time, it, it's, it's, not, it's not a deep thought for anybody to understand. There is nobody like Jesus. There is nobody theologically like Jesus in the Jewish community. There is no one like morally like Jesus in the Jewish community. There's no one like him ethically. You and I would all see that there's no one like him, obviously, in divinity. But there's no one like Jesus. So anybody that's going to follow Jesus is going to be a different person. We won't go into it, but there are, there are five, if you will, political parties in the nation of Israel right now. You know the Pharisees. They are rule followers. They believe that if they follow the rules, that God's not only going to give them heaven, but he's also going to give them a great life here on the planet. He'll always bless us. You have the Sadducees. The Sadducees are elitists. They're pretty much always the high priests. They are very worldly in their thinking. And they don't even believe in a resurrection. So that's why we recognize that they're Sadducees, because they're Sadducee. So we have third, we have the Herodians. The Herodians love the nation of Rome. They love being part of, the, of now the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They love the structure the, the political freedom. They loved what Rome gave them. That's three. We have the Essians, which aren't mentioned in the Bible, but we know them because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Essians said, we don't like Israel at all. We're, we're tired of playing this political, spiritual game. And we want a simple faith. And they went off into the deserts and copied Scripture as, as if you will, celibate monks. One, two, three, four fifth one are the are the zealots the zealots if you will for our practical purposes they're the january sixers all right they believe every political intrigue every political conspiracy that possibly comes theologically they believe that they're god's hand and anything morally or ethically could be validated if they believe that what they were doing was for the sake of righteousness and for the sake of Israel. And their tool of validation is the dagger. And if anybody sinned, they were worried that it might reflect poorly on the nation of Israel and the judgment or the blessings of God. And so they eliminated anyone. And they were a brutal group of people. So we had five groups. And standing over here all by himself is obviously the person and the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has a number of followers. We know the number of, of the 13. We know the women. And we can suspect that there's a couple of thousand followers, but he really stands unique in the country. And so for anyone to represent him and cast out a demon would be a rather unique individual. He wouldn't align himself with any of these political parties. He's aligning himself with Christ. 
And though we don't know anything about him, Jesus says, wait and leave him alone. And I want to suggest to you that that's, that's an important point in this moment of time. And for us, we have to be careful. First off, we don't know how the story ends. We don't know if he casted out the demon in Jesus' name, if he was successful, or if he merely was saying these things. We don't know that. But the, the story doesn't unpack enough for us to know. And Jesus simply could be saying, hey, just wait. When I die on the cross, it'll become very, 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 very evident which side that this guy is going to be on. He will follow me in resurrection glory or he will fall back and disappear. And so we, we can see that, we recognize that. The second thing we need to recognize is if, if this is true, he stands unique and he stands somewhat different than anything we would have. And we see in Jesus the pure ability of omniscience to know the heart and the mind of an individual. And he says, be careful. You and I don't have that omniscience. And as Scripture unfolds from Jesus' time on, you need to know that the early church struggled with who is for us and who is using Jesus to advance their careers or their ideas or their followers. And so concerns became responsibility or responsible. And I want to suggest to you that, that some of those concerns are personal and some of them are corporate. And one of those concerns would be, first, does he follow Scripture? Is he consistent with God's Word? Just because someone quotes the Bible family doesn't mean that they quote accurately. Acts 17.11 reminds us of a group of people, the Bereans, who sat under Paul's teaching, and they said that they were examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And I want, to, I want to remind you today, please, just because you hear somebody say something engaging, don't swallow it. Examine Scripture to see its accuracy. Dive deep yourself. Get a, get a concordance out. Go ask a number of Christ-following friends if, if, if they see it this way. And understand that that's an important responsibility it's so important we teach our kids one of the first verses that they'll ever learn is 2 Timothy 2.15. Right, Awana Commander? Sure, that's the best you could get here this morning. You had a chance to advertise Awana and you'd go, sure. Study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly, correctly handling the word of truth. So we teach our kids that right from the get-go. And that you and I then, if we're going to teach that to our kids, then you and I have got to be careful not to fall into that stumbling block because we simply fall in love with a speaker. Never do that. I want to suggest to you the second thing is the Godhead must be honored. God the Father, God the Father and the Trinity can never, ever, ever see their character or their character qualities diminished. If you ever hear a preacher saying that God gave this ability, God gave healing to humans, 
And he can't do that anymore. Please listen. You're listening to the wrong preacher. Understand, Ephesians 1.11 says this about Jesus, to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything is in his hands, in his disposal, in his mindset, in his, in his view. He can't miss a thing. And so when a preacher ever takes abilities away from God, limiting his power in order to empower a believer, he is belittling the authority of God. Understand that clearly. The third thing I, I, I suggest to you is now corporate. A local church must protect its family. And, and we have a corporate structure by which you affirm elders of which I am merely one of the team. You heard Eric today. But a local church must use them, and God expects elders to serve as shepherds out of the care for the church family, and they are expected to know Scripture and argue among themselves. And Acts 20, 28 says it this way, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. And family, I, I want you to understand whether you understand the weight or not to care for the church family when it comes to the interpretation of Scripture is a burden. And the day will come that any man that you have put into this position for the last 80 years of our existence will stand in judgment by God for what we believe. So, we don't have the mind of Christ, and Jesus just simply reminds us, as he closes this, to be somewhat naive, to have an open hand of love when it comes to serving the Lord. And, and I'm so appreciative of our church family for how we see that. But I, I want you to see he leaves us with a twofold way in which to evaluate ourselves personally. First off, in verse 1, he talks about our actions. Even a cup of water in his name, hardly a miracle is a worthy action done for Christ. So family, just because what you did doesn't seem significant, if what you did in the desires of your heart in serving Jesus Christ was as insignificant as a glass of water, he says, that's validated. That's validated. Serve him in simplicity. And then he reminds us of the importance of what we communicate in verse 42. In teaching, whoever handles God's word inaccurately to those with an immature faith and he hinders their spiritual growth are under immense judgment from God. And that in judgment from God is, is pictured with the millstone wrapped around his neck and thrown into the sea. And I want you to understand there's two millstones, all right? There's a, there's a small one that weighs a couple hundred pounds. And then there's one that's referred to as the greater millstone. 
It's the one that the oxens push around. That's the one that's tied on your neck. I want to suggest you're not going to go swimming if that's tied around your neck. God gives you a very picture of what he sees in protecting you and the family to God's word. Let's notice, if you will, our last. To follow Jesus' teaching is to put him before everything. And if you will, let's, let's look at this last few series of verses. For, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better that you enter life crippled than with two hands and to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. The salt is good. And if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So family, I want you to understand, right here, he's now telling you how important his work is, that, fin that we started the story way back in verse 30. This is how, how important he is. He has, he has challenged you to say, hey, be humble. I'm going to the cross. He's challenged you to know your family, know what it means to identify with Jesus. I'm going to the cross. He then finishes off with this one. I'm going to tell you how important this is that I'm going to the cross. So pay attention. Going to the cross is his ultimate work. Now over the last couple of weeks, we saw him transfigured. He turned into a glowing light bulb. Even his clothes glowed. He talked to Moses. He talked to Elijah. Jesus said, ah, that's not a big deal. That's who I am. He says, I'm here for the cross. He's healed a lot of people. He's fed thousands. He says, that's not why I'm here. I'm going to the cross. So he made it very clear what his purpose in life is. Don't miss out. This is everything. The cross is the prime event. So consequently, there is no enticement on our part that should separate his priority from that which we consider a priority. Jesus is not saying we should remove body parts to avoid sin. Eyes, hands, and feet are all included in what we view, in what we do, and where we go. And family, if he was really saying he wanted you to stop sinning, what would he attack? The organ between your ears. He's using hyperbole here to show you how important his work is and our identification with his work by accepting what he's done in going to the cross. He is showing us the value of the kingdom of God. So Jesus wants us to understand that as important as our eyes and our hands and our feet are, they are not life. The kingdom of God is life. And nothing in this life should be allowed to prevent one from entering the kingdom.
And so now he comes to a graphic illustration. He says, where the fire's never out and the worm's not extinguished. And so for you and I, hell is somewhat of a subjective idea that we need a preacher and the study of God's Word to really paint. But that wasn't true to the Jewish community. And I want you to see here, we have this little, this little map, and I want you to see, I know it's busy, but if I could take you to the blue, almost off, off right of center, that is the old temple compound. Today you'd know it to be the Dome of the Rock. And it's right there in the center of the city, and everybody can see it. There are three key, city, three key valleys here. The Kidron Valley. Jesus will pray in the Garden of Gethsemane over here on the right, and then he will pass through the Kidron Valley to go to the temple area where he will be condemned to die. The Teropian Valley on the side, you can see now the, the, the tongue that comes down and connects them. That's the old city of David. And it was protected by these two valleys. The third is the Hinnom Valley. It comes and sweeps around and connects. The Hinnom Valley has, has got a terrible history in the Jewish world. Under King Manasseh, King Manasseh first started sacrificing his children to, to gods and goddesses outside of the covenant to Israel. And it became a scourge for hundreds of years in Israel. So much so that when they came back after exile, the Valley of Hinnom became a dump site. All of their garbage went there. It was, it was an aroma that you couldn't miss. There was always fires. There was always burning going on there. It sacrificed, excuse me, it symbolized the worst of the worst. When Judas committed suicide, they bought the field and then gave it to the burial of the unknown, the unwanted, the uncared for. That was right in the middle of the Hinnom Valley. It was graphic. And he simply is a picture of hell. It is in the tongue that you'll study, Gehenna, Geh, Valley of, Hena, Hinnom. And so Gehenna is a very picturesque idea to the Jewish nation. You will spend an eternity in the fiery garbage pits where your soul will never, ever be extinguished. So he says, what's of value to you? Kingdom or Gehenna? And he lays that before all of us as disciples. Are we really committed to following Christ? Discipleship to Jesus is the total claim of our lives. Totally consumed and totally unbreakable. He pictures that unbreakability by two things. First off, fire. Family, I believe that the fire here represents the burnt offering. And those of you who know Old Testament know that the, the fire was complete. It was a whole burnt offering. Everything was extinguished. And he looks to you and I and he says, I expect you to be totally extinguished for me. The salt is a salt of a covenant as unbreakable. And he says, I expect you to be unbreakably loyal. I expect you to burn completely because the kingdom is everything. 
There is no place for personal acclaim. There is no place for unrighteous unkindness. There is no place for attacking others for down here stuff. When salvation is at stake, everything is jettisoned. Father in heaven, I just ask you to remind us of, of just who we are today. We're, we're your kids. And dear God, as such, you give us marching orders on how to behave and how to represent you in this life. And so, Father, as Jesus could say, I'm here to die. I'm here to proclaim the glory of God in resurrection proof that I have died on the cross for the sins of mankind. I expect you, my followers, to also be totally consumed. And as trial comes here, I expect you to stand firm in Christ. As, as, as things tempt us, I expect you to stand firm in Christ. In your treatment of others, I expect you to recognize who they are ultimately as my kids and you respect them. So Father in heaven, I would pray that we have the mind of Christ as we are the family of God. And may people see that difference as they see us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.